Welcome back to the Napoleon Show, episode number eight, David Markham. Cameron, how you doing? <laughs> Good, thank you, mate. I think I've recovered from our marathon episode number seven, and uh, we're going to try and make this a short one to make up for the last one, right? Well, we have said that before, and, and, and we have not always been as successful. However, as I, as I said on my response uh, on, on the site, uh, I do plead guilty to, to perhaps uh, being difficult to uh, shut down once I'm uh, up and running. Uh, but I do hope our, our listeners, uh, as many of them have indicated uh, is the case, uh, uh, don't really worry too much about how long they are. Uh, one nice thing about podcasts, of course, is that you can always put them on pause or you can always uh, stop it and come back and, and, and pick it up later. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, it shouldn't be too much of a problem as long as our voices hold out. Uh, I want to start, uh, by the way, Cameron, uh, with a couple of things here. First of all, I mentioned the Dahesh uh, Museum in the last episode. And, uh, of course, I misspelled this, so if you're trying to find it on the web, it's D-A-H-E-S-H. And I did check their website at Dahesh.com, and the exhibition is continued into the 31st of December of 2000. And six. So if you are listening uh, between now and then and are going to be in New York, be sure to do that. Uh, now, the other thing, Cameron, is I, one of the things I always try to do in, in, in our discussions is educate you as, as best as I can. And, and it's not always been easy, uh, but I've done what I can. And, and in the last episode, you indicated uh, that something, the, the Egyptian campaign had stuck in your craw. And you didn't know uh, exactly what that really meant, what the heck a crawl was, uh, but nevertheless there it was. And I suggested that maybe three farmers in Iowa uh, knew. Uh, and, and I talked to one of those three farmers in Iowa on your behalf. And so uh, I'm going to read to you what this individual said. Okay. He said, when you can't swallow something, when it won't go down, or you are loath to accept it, it sticks in your crawl. The craw is the crop or preliminary stomach of a fowl where food is predigested. Hunter centuries ago noticed that some birds swallowed bits of stone that were too large to pass through the craw and into the digestive tract. These stones needed, uh, unlike the sand and pebbles needed by birds to help grind food in the pouch, literally stuck in the craw, couldn't go down any further. This oddity became part of the language of hunters, and the phrase was soon used figuratively. Now, i got to be honest, that was not an old Iowa farmer, uh, although I know quite a few old Iowa farmers. That was from the Encyclopedia of Word and Phrase Origins by Robert Henderson. But don't ever let it be said, Cameron, that I don't do everything I can, leaving no stone unturned to, to educate both you and our listeners as to what's going on. Okay, well, thank you very much, David. I'm sure we, we all appreciate that insight into American slang. And we can hardly wait to see the comments on the website. <laughs> okay. Markham is, out, Markham is out of control. Get him out of there. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right, let's go. Let's get into Napoleon. All right, so we left Napoleon after the last episode. Uh, he made a snap decision to leave Egypt after he heard that a lot of the uh, uh, territory that he had captured in his Italian campaign had been lost and that France was in a terrible state. It, it, it had worsened incredibly during the time he was in Egypt. So he jumps on a boat 
skirts around Nelson's ships and heads back to France. Now, we, we should also note that, um, just to wrap up, I guess, the Egyptian campaign, that the successes and the wins that he had in Egypt didn't last very long. The uh, General Kleber was uh, assassinated. There were a lot more wars, and, and the Brits basically came in and ended up basically taking control of the situation, didn't they? Yes, Kleber was assassinated by someone who was generally described as a, 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 a radical Muslim or a, uh, an Islamic extremist, uh, which just shows you how uh, things don't seem to change much uh, as time goes on. Uh, and, and, and you're quite right. The, the, uh, the, the British eventually uh, regain uh, influence in the area. They defeat the French uh, in 1801. Uh, and, and they give, by the way, the, the French a very honorable uh, deal. They are uh, sent back to uh, France, uh, uh, as, uh, you know, carted back to France and in, in, in British ships, as a matter of fact. Uh, they're not allowed to keep the Rosetta Stone, but they are allowed to make as many rubbings of the stone as they want. And it's from those rubbings that the ultimate uh, translation of the Rosetta Stone was, was, was done by, by a Frenchman. And... Uh, uh, they do take a lot of other uh, of the the antiquities uh, with with them and, and their their weapons and so on. So it's it's really a pretty honorable deal on on all sides. But but yeah, the the, the French are, are once again out of of Egypt. But Egypt is not out of France. Uh, two two things are very important to to note again from from last time. One is the the whole concept of Egyptology and the Egyptian revival. Uh, uh, mania that went throughout uh, France and, and, and indeed much of, of Europe uh, with the Egyptian styles and, and art and architecture and decorative arts and, and, and so on. <clears throat> and then the other one, more importantly, perhaps certainly to our discussion, is that whether rightfully or wrongfully, Napoleon has an image coming out of Egypt of having been wildly successful. As far as the French were concerned, and therefore to some extent at least the French government, uh, Napoleon's campaign was a brilliant success. Uh, he's gone there, he's kicked the British out, and again, it's not until 1801 they can come back, uh, and, and he's opened up this, this mysterious area to, to knowledge, uh, and now he is coming back to save France from potential disaster against the second coalition uh, against them. Uh, and so he is, as I said last time, a hero in Corsica where he stays a week or so. And he arrives in France and all the way up to Paris he's, he's cheered by throngs of people. In Paris, of course, he's mobbed uh, every, everywhere uh, he, he goes. But he gets to, uh, to, to Paris and he discovers uh, a, a couple of things that have to be dealt with. Uh, first of all, England, Austria, and Russia, uh, along with smaller powers like Naples, Portugal, and, and of course Turkey, who is who's, who's still ticked off at him for for the campaign in Egypt, have formed the second coalition against France, and and so they are putting pressure uh, on France militarily, uh, and the Directory not only is not particularly good at dealing with the military situation, but they have allowed the the economy and the infrastructure of France to 
to become even more dismal than it had been before. Uh, the French currency, which had never been very strong under the directory, uh, was pretty much uh, gone right now. And inflation was so bad uh, that that it was just just sort of like after World War One in, in, in Germany, where it took a wheelbarrow of of a Deutschmarks to buy a loaf of bread. Uh, the, the the infrastructure, roads and bridges and, and other kinds of things, had not been kept up. Uh, uh, sort of like in, in, in my country, where it's more popular to cut taxes than to to uh, build bridges, uh, and you know business and the economy in general was in bad shape. So the the government was was clearly in in trouble and and problematic. And of course, there's a little matter of Josephine, and I suggest that we talk about uh, Josephine first. <laughs> So um, as people remember, hopefully from the last show, while he was in Egypt, Napoleon received a letter uh, basically making it very obvious that Josephine was having a fairly public ongoing affair with uh, Captain Charles, and uh, he was determined to get rid of her. So he arrives back in Paris, goes to the house. It's been lavishly redecorated, but uh, Josephine isn't there. So uh, she doesn't get back for a couple of days and her excuse is that she went to meet him on a different road to the one that he came in by. Um, not sure if I believe that story. but uh, well, every, Everything I know actually is that that's pretty true. Uh, she, there's obviously more than one, one road to Paris uh, and she goes south on one and, and Napoleon comes north on another uh, and, and they cross paths and of course she's not going to know that until she gets pretty far south and in the meantime he's gone to Malmaison discovers she's not there uh, reasonably enough assumes the worst that she's gallivanting around somewhere uh, with, with Monsieur Charles and, and, and so he he packs up her bags and her personal possessions and so on and sets them out by the door and figures that he's done with her. He's going to file for divorce, uh, an interesting proposition given the law of the time. But, but uh, you know, nevertheless, he, he's going to do that. And, and she finally comes back. And, and she's just mortified uh, to, to find her stuff out. Josephine was in uh, kind of an odd position. She hadn't exactly been faithful. She had no reason to believe that, that Napoleon should, should particularly want, want to keep her. And it's not like she wouldn't have been able to, to attract, uh, uh, other, other men. She already had, had one, uh, uh, strung out. She was working on another, uh, uh, and, and who knows how many others maybe down the line. Uh, but on the other hand, she, she did have this thing for Napoleon. She never matched, as we talked about a few episodes ago, she never matched his passion. But she did like him a great deal, was very fond of him, and it had grown sort of accustomed to him. And, and I think really had, once he came back, began to have second thoughts about, about giving him up, you know, for, for the, 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 the kind of life she would lead if, if, if she were single again. So she goes up to the door, and she's pounding on the door, and she's crying and crying and crying, and Napoleon is unmoved. He's, he's having none of it. Well, she, she pulls out uh, one of his military tricks. If things are not going well for you, you bring in the heavy guns. And the heavy guns in this, in this case are, are her two children uh, by her, ironically, by her first marriage, uh, uh, Hortense and Eugène. Uh, now, you might not think initially that, that bringing in this, this 
fellow's stepkids to plead your case uh, is going to get you very far. After all, that's just going to remind him that, that you're number two to begin with. Uh, but the fact is that, that uh, Eugene was uh, a very loyal follower of Napoleon. and In fact, all through Napoleon's career, Eugene will be one of his most loyal and, and most able uh, associates, far better than, than, than Napoleon's brothers, for example. And Napoleon is very fond uh, of, of Eugene. And, and he's also fond of Hortense as well. And so she brings in the two kids. They go to plead the case. And by all accounts, Napoleon's heart melts. And he, he gives in uh, and, and says, okay, I will take Josephine uh, back. Now, what's really funny about all this, of course, is that Josephine, from that point on, as far as I can tell, becomes just about the perfect wife. She's good for him politically. She doesn't spend quite as much, at least, as she used to. Of course, he's there to keep tabs on things, and they also end up with a lot more money later. Uh, but she's a good, loyal, faithful wife who uses her friendships with powerful people to be, to be helpful to, to her husband. Uh, Napoleon's passion has no doubt cooled a bit for her. After all, as you, you, you see her in a, a bit of a different light uh, after all that's gone on. Uh, nevertheless, they settle into a very, very comfortable and I frankly think very loving relationship. Uh, uh, I still think one of the biggest mistakes Napoleon ever made was was divorcing Josephine, uh, which he does uh, several episodes from now. Uh, but uh, it's a good marriage. It's a very famous marriage. It, it is indeed the, the the modern Romeo and Juliet uh, of the Western world. And and when you think of Napoleon, you you, you always think of, of Josephine. I have a, a letter from him uh, in his own words. I think to one of his brothers, where he says, "But what could I do?" As she came down the staircase in tears, I saw Eugene Hortense, who were following her, sobbing. I was not given a heart for nothing, and I cannot remain unmoved when I see tears flowing. Eugene followed me to Egypt. I have accustomed myself to look at him as my adopted son. He is so brave. He is such a good boy. Hortense is just coming out. All who know her speak highly of her. I confess I was deeply moved. I couldn't resist the sobs of those two poor children. I said to myself, are they to be the victims of their mother's ill conduct? I stopped Eugene. Hortense turned back with her mother. I said nothing. How could I help it? Every man is weak. Now, that's, you know, uh, weak and being governed by his heart is not the way that we normally look upon Napoleon. But, um, yeah, obviously he was a, a complex guy and he obviously loved the kids. And as you say, that was reflected throughout the rest of his life, as did he love Josephine. And um, I suspect, you know, really did want to find a justification for forgiving uh, forgiving Josephine because you know he really did have a strong connection to her, which, as you say, lasted throughout his life, even after their divorce. And you know, legend has it that even on his deathbed in Saint Helena, uh, Josephine was among his last thoughts and words. Yeah, he's supposed to have said at the head of the army and, and, and Josephine, but I don't think anyone really knows for sure what he said. <laughs> but I do, I do want to second what you say, and, and you, you made a point that I think deserves to be emphasized, uh, Cameron. Uh, 
some of this that we've just talked about doesn't fit into sort of the stereotypical uh, image that that some people have of Napoleon. Uh, I mean, you you read some some historians who who see him only as this hard-hearted warmonger who doesn't care about people and so on, and and you can't imagine him uh, weakening in the way that he does. Uh, but as that letter, the very nice letter says, you know, I was not given a heart for, for, for nothing. And, and, uh, uh, he did have a heart and he, he was very concerned about Josephine. Uh, he was very concerned about the welfare of his, of his men. Uh, he was very concerned about the welfare of his family, although his family, uh, with a few exceptions, uh, generally tended to let him down. But he was a very, very, uh, loyal, uh, emotional supporter of of his family and of other people that he loved, and and I don't think we should ever lose sight of that very very human element to Napoleon Bonaparte. I agree. So now I've I've been reading a little bit about the conditions in Paris when he got there. Um, obviously, it was a bit bit of a disaster zone. It, it sounds like uh, <laughs> you know the the great corruption of Rome in its in its latter years. But his his original sponsor, Paul Barat, who listeners will remember was the guy who first gave Napoleon opportunities at uh, commanding position and appointed him to look after Paris when the the peasants were revolting. Uh, He had really fallen into major corruption. Barat was basically neglecting his work. He was obviously one of the directors at the time. Neglected his work for loose women and gambling parties, leading the life described by his cousin, the Marquis de Sade. That had to be a, a giveaway. That uh, he, he would sell any job to pay for his pleasures, according to one author. And my only my only objection to 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 what you said, and forgive the interruption, is you say he had sunk into this. Uh, I I don't think Barra ever was anything but what you're describing. But but, <laughs> yeah. but but please do go on. Yeah, but I I think he'd just gotten worse by the sounds of it over time. Um, <laughs> Now, uh, and there was a, a lot of apathy, I think, about the situation in Paris. A lot of people were sort of shrugging their shoulders, including Napoleon's brothers. Joseph and Lucien had both written novels about, uh, allegorical novels about what was going on in Paris, and apparently both of those novels adopted an attitude of escapism and hopelessness in the face of the situation. But, of course, Napoleon wasn't apathetic at all by nature. He was a take-control kind of guy. So he decided that he needed to get into the directory, but it wasn't that easy. Apparently, um, he went to see Barat, but unknown to him, Barat was in secret negotiations with the royalists, according to one source I read, to bring back Louis XVIII, for which he was going to get paid 12 million francs. Yes, uh, well, and, and as a matter of fact, I, I'm hoping that the source you read was was my book, Napoleon for Dummies, since, since I have that in there. And and yeah, Barat was looking out for one thing and one thing only, namely Barat. Uh, he was a revolutionary when it was appropriate to be a revolutionary, or I should say when, when it was profitable to be a revolutionary. He was in favor of the directoire, the directory, uh, when that was going to uh, do well for him. And he had seen that the directory 
a system of government had not worked very well. He did believe, I think, that we that, that France needed some kind of a, a single leader, and he was prepared to, as you say, bring back the Bourbon, uh, bring back the, the brother of the executed king Louis the Sixteenth, uh, and uh, in, in, in so doing, uh, gain a great deal of of wealth. Again, perhaps as many as twelve million francs. Uh, not surprising, by the way, because you have all sorts of turmoil. Uh, the Vendée, <clears throat> which is a, a, a region in, in France and in, in the uh, in the western part of France, very very conservative uh, Catholic area, never liked the revolution. Uh, there were uh, groups there uh, called uh, Chouin. Uh, who, who were talking about uh, starting a civil war or possibly a secession movement uh, from the revolutionary government. Uh, brigandage was, was, was rampant again, just like it had been uh, in the days before the revolution. That, that's highway robbery. Uh, there's one source I read where Napoleon's uh, baggage was even broken into uh, on his trip uh, north to Paris uh, after Egypt. Uh, you have uh, gangs. You have what, what, what in the modern world would be uh, gangs of, of substantial size roaming the countryside, roaming the streets, intimidating people, uh, holding them up, and so on. <clears throat> the, the, the country, in, in, in fact, was very poorly run, both economically and politically and and uh, spiritually, I guess you could say, and certainly militarily, although... Uh, Thanks to uh, General Massena and, and some others, the, the military was actually beginning to, to sort of hold its own. Uh, and here comes Bonaparte. Now, now Bonaparte is in the same predicament that he was when he came home from Italy. He was a, a great national hero. Everybody loved him. The directory didn't dare act against him because he was so popular uh, in fact, they really needed him. They needed to attach themselves to him. They, they were delighted to be seen in public with him. There's some people uh, uh, running for, for re-election as Republicans who are nervous about being seen uh, with, with President Bush because of the controversial war and so on. But Napoleon was sought out by the directory uh, and, and was delighted uh, uh, to, to, to fill that role. However, he's got to figure out what to do. The military situation is sort of stabilized now, so there's no sudden pressing need for him to go out and, and, and beat the Austrians again and, and, and so on, although uh, th there will be uh, that need, but it's not immediate. Uh, there's no other campaign waiting in the wings. So as you rightfully suggest, uh, he, he says, well, okay, maybe this is time for me to become active in politics well, what's the best way to do that? To become a member of the directory. Unfortunately for Napoleon, he was 30, and there was a constitutional requirement that, that you had to be 40 uh, to be a member of the directory, just like in the United States. You have to be a certain age to be a president or serve in uh, Congress and, 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 and so on, or the Senate. Uh, and there really wasn't much uh, interest on the part of the politicians in power to change the Constitution just for one person. Uh, and so Napoleon has to sort of think about what else uh, uh, could, could be done. Uh, and, of course, what else could be done was to join uh, one of the many uh, plots and conspiracies uh, that were uh, going on. 
and in my book, I talk about at least two of them. There's the Barah thing that you brought up, uh, where you know there's going to be an effort maybe to bring back the 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 the, the king, uh, and and you've got uh, Bernadotte, uh, General Jean Baptiste Bernadotte, uh, who was sort of of the left, was considering a a coup d'état of of his own. You may recall, uh, dear listeners, that Bernadotte had married Napoleon's first girlfriend, Desiree Clary, and, uh, and, and, and is going to be in Napoleon's army for a long time, and, and, and you better keep an eye on him, because if, if you don't, he'll, he'll cause trouble. And then finally, there's another uh, plot going on, and, and that was one where Lucien Bonaparte, who was a member of the Council of 500, one of the legislative branches. In fact, he was its president. Uh, and Emmanuel Joseph uh, uh, Siez and Roger Ducot uh, were thinking of trying to find a way to bring France a more stable and effective government and to counteract any effort on the part of royalists. And uh, Siez obviously was one of the guys whose pamphlet, What is the Third Estate, had uh, played a large role in the beginning of the revolution. And, uh, you know, he figured that they needed a, a sword, they needed a, a strong military personality. Obviously, Lucien Bonaparte, one of Napoleon's brothers, was supporting the Siez uh, Duco uh, plot. And Siez had this idea that the directory didn't work. They needed to set up a three-man consulate, very similar to the early days of Rome. And uh, they, they needed somebody who could, you know, be the, the, I guess, the strong arm of the consulate. And, he, and so he approached Napoleon and said, how about it? Would you like to join our little plot? <laughs> and 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 that that's that's right. There there were other people uh, names that our listeners will want to uh, remember. Uh, of course, many of our listeners probably uh, already know them. People uh, such as uh, Joseph Fouché, uh, uh, Jean Jacques uh, Cambrissier, uh, and of course Charles Maurice de Talleyrand, uh, who we will normally refer to simply as Talleyrand. Uh, these are all people who are, to one extent or another, involved uh, in, in, in this plot. And they, and they needed someone who could bring the support of the military uh, on board, sort of, as you suggest, as a strong arm, but also just sort of, if nothing else, to negate the possibility that the military would suddenly decide that they were going to support the, uh, the directory for for some reason, and the the the, the first person uh, actually the CS had in mind was uh, General Jobert, uh, who was the same age as Napoleon, and 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 who had been uh, pretty uh, uh, successful militarily, and Siez, uh rightfully I think figured he could control uh, Jobert better than he could Napoleon, uh, but Jobert was killed at the Battle of Novi. Uh, ironically, I suppose, on August 15th of 1799, uh, Napoleon's birthday. Uh, so, uh, they turned to plan B, B as in Bonaparte, of course. Uh, and, you know, Napoleon had a lot to offer. He was a national hero, so he would bring immediate credibility, uh, to the people and popularity. He was enormously competent, 
I don't know much about Jobert. I don't know if he would have been anywhere near the match in competence and intellect uh, of Napoli. He certainly wasn't the national hero uh, that, that Napoleon was. Uh, and uh, Napoleon also not only was known for his ability as a general, which is Jobert and, and, of course, others. I mean, there's uh, as, when you study military history, you discover there's lots of generals, and lots of them are good. Uh, but Napoleon was already known as a good administrator. Now we're getting back to the comparisons with Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar and so on. He had organized countries, Italy, Malta, Egypt, and, and so on. Uh, and he was well known as a supporter of the revolution, a true republican. There was no chance in the world that Napoleon would somehow end up on the royalist side uh, of, of all of this. Uh, the downside of Napoleon, of course, was it was pretty clear to one at all, he was ambitious. And and uh, that that was problematic. The, the three-man directory really sort of comes a little bit later, and of course, the the exact makeup of that and 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 the, the the likelihood that one of the three would be more equal than the other two combined uh, this hadn't been hadn't been thought of yet. Uh, but you're right, uh, Siez and the others say, okay, Zobera is gone, Bonaparte it will be, and in fact, of course, Bonaparte it was. So to set this up. There was basically an arrangement that the there were, there were two sort of houses of government at the time, right? There was the Council of Ancients, and then there was the Five Hundred Council of Five Hundred. That's correct. Now, so what they decided to do first of all was to get the houses of Parliament outside of Paris <laughs> for a start. <laughs> yes, out to out to out to Saint. Uh, you okay? Yes, yeah, excuse me. <laughs> out out to Saint Cloud for their own safety. Yeah, of course. The suburbs. That's right. And uh, Napoleon was put in charge of the troops in Paris. So they moved the the, uh, Council of Ancients, first of all, out there. And then Talleyrand was sent to bribe Barat to resign from the directory, which Barat was was easily bribed to do that. Why did they need to bribe Barat to get rid of him, do you think? I think you and I are shocked, by the way, shocked to hear that Barack could be easily uh, bright. Well, you, you, you've got, you, first of all, you've got to make vacancies, but you need to get Barack out of the way. Barack's been around since the, the early days. Uh, Barack's one of the few people who could stand up if he were inclined uh, and and say, wait a minute, let's, let's rethink this. And, of course, Barack was working, at least nominally, for an opposite coup d'etat, namely, namely one in favor of the Bourbon, of the Louis. And, and so you want to get him out of town and eliminate that. Uh, and there's a lot of ways of getting people out of town. Uh, and, and of course, the easiest way in, a, in the case of someone like Barat is just say, here, here's some bucks, go have a good time. And that's what he did. <laughs> so then Napoleon goes to the Council of Ancients and gives a speech which doesn't go so well. No, you know, no, this is one of those really strange episodes in history. And, you know, I've been studying Napoleon for the for 20 years, and I've, I've talked with people from all over the world about, about Napoleonic history, and none of us can quite figure out, as far as I know, none of us can. If someone out there can figure it out, please do let us know, what in the heck went wrong? Napoleon is known as an orator. Napoleon is known as, as someone who could keep his cool and 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 be persuasive uh, and and win people to his side. And yet, as you say, he 
he goes into the council of, of ancients to convince them uh, that that they need to 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 join in this move to to eliminate the directory and, and come up with a new constitution and so on, uh, and and it, and it all comes apart. There's different eyewitness accounts; they don't all agree, but it seems that he. He he be, he loses his cool. He 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 almost. I get the sense that he panics. You know, his first words may have been good, but it's not giving him the response that he anticipated. And so he he tries a slightly different tack, and that doesn't work. He tries another tack. Eventually, he almost seems to be threatening the Council of Ancients, which is not what he had intended to do. Uh, I mean, it's sort of, sort of like. You know, in, in his return for the 100 days in 1815, where he says, we must retake power without firing a shot. That's what they want to do here, too. They want to take power without firing a shot. They want everything to go according to plan with the blessing of the legislative bodies. And, and he gets in there, uh, and it's, and it's simply not going to work. Uh, he's being booed. Uh, if there were tomatoes, they'd have been thrown at him. Uh, and so he, he leaves, and he's clearly shaken. He really doesn't know what to do. So he says, well, let's see now. I, that didn't work very well. Uh, let's go to the other legislative body where my brother, Lucien, is president. So we know they like Bonaparte. They've elected one of my brothers as the, as the president. Uh, and and so we'll go there and and we'll make up for it. You know, it's just like a, a you know a, a sports team if they get if they get beat by a a good team and 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 their morale's down, they want to play a patsy and win a couple of games quick so they can re, regain their their composure. Well, that's what the Council of Five Hundred was supposed to do for Napoleon, but of course it didn't. Uh, he goes in there and he he starts to harangue them a bit and he's being cursed. Uh, at one point he's. He's actually attacked physically, and, and some of his personal bodyguard uh, soldiers has to come in there and, and drag him out uh, while people are screaming at him, you traitor, you so-and-so. And Lucien, who's, of course, president, he's standing up at the dais, is unable to prevent this. Uh, and now <clears throat> the council turns on to Lucien, and they say, you, you've seen this brother. Your brother is a traitor. Your brother is an outlaw. And 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 we want you to declare him, you know, uh, this. And, and Lucian obviously refuses to do so. Calms him down and quickly sends a note to uh, to his brother Napoleon. Uh, oh, brother, where art thou? Uh, it's time to act here, fella. Uh, I can't hold these guys off uh, forever. Uh, Napoleon is very very loyal, uh, family wise, and of course one of the first things he probably thinks about is. Jeez, I mean, they were nasty enough to me. Now, what are they going to do to 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 Lucien? Uh, and uh, so he sends in soldiers to to uh, to to bring Lucien out to, to to safety. And Lucien addresses Napoleon's soldiers, who are standing in formation outside of the building. Uh, and these soldiers, of course. I mean, these guys aren't necessarily the brain thrust of France, you know, and, and they can't figure out what's going on. Their, their general is, is being booed out of one uh, group, and now he's being booed out of another. Just, just what in the hell is going on here? Uh, so Lucien, who they also recognize and know that he's a powerful person, comes out and says, well, the problem here, my brothers, is that armed royalists are trying to seize control. 
uh, and we've got to protect the country. La patrie est en danger. The, the country is in danger, uh, and we need you, my fellow soldiers, my brother soldiers, to go in and protect the republic. And he, he pulls out his sword, which was probably a ceremonial sword, and says, I will run it through my brother Napoleon, if necessary, to defend uh, the republic. And and now, of course, Napoleon jumps into this. He says, well, this is, the, the, the die is cast, you know. This is what we're going to have to do. Uh, so he, he tells his soldiers that he had tried to speak, and instead, royalist traitors had attacked him with daggers. Uh, well, the soldiers, who are very loyal to him, even now, as they will be for the next 15 years, uh, the soldiers are furious. And so the, the, the heavy drums are beat, the grenadiers fix their bayonets, they march into the hall. Uh, it's very clear who's in charge now. Uh, many of uh, Napoleon's opponents uh, uh, in, the, in the body uh, very famously escaped through the lower windows, uh, and uh, uh, the remaining members of the two branches are immediately uh, reconvened, as it were, and and they appoint Napoleon, Sies, and Duco as three councils in a new provisional government. It was not as it should have been. It didn't go as well as it should have been. But it was bloodless. It was a coup. Power was now shifted to this new uh, uh, trio of leaders without firing a shot. Uh, this all took place, by the way, on the 9th and the 10th of November, uh, which in the revolutionary calendar is called Brumaire. So when you hear people talk about the coup d'etat du Brumaire or simply Brumaire, uh, we're talking about the, the coup d'etat, the, the seizure of power uh, by Napoleon, uh, Siez, and Ducot. Now at this point, there's three of them. And Napoleon was really just the sword, as you rightfully point out. Indeed, Siez was the, the, the longest serving and most well known in some respects and, and the mastermind of all this. So one might have expected Siez would, would, uh, uh, take power. Now, one story I heard is they walk into the room and there's, and there's three chairs around a table and, and the first council's chair is a little bit bigger than the other, this first, second, and third council. And Napoleon sits down in the first council's chair and, and that's the end of that. I'm not sure that really happened, but clearly, uh, Napoleon, uh, takes charge. C.S. later says that Napoleon was the man who knew how to do everything, was able to do everything, and wanted to do everything. And, and this is, this is a, an accurate assessment. So uh, they debate the new constitution, uh, and Napoleon is really very liberal, very progressive for his day, much more so than much of the rest of the government will be. Uh, so the new constitution was going to include universal male suffrage at age 21, a system of publicites or public votes to confirm the constitution and Napoleon, uh, legislative branches, and so on. Uh, Napoleon had, uh, rather, Siez had offered Napoleon some some more perfunctionary and symbolic uh, jobs, uh, which sounded wonderful, uh, but had no power. And Napoleon was no fool. He said, no, I'm going to be uh, first consul. Siez uh, becomes ultimately the president of, of the Senate. 
uh, Ducot uh, leaves, and you end up with Napoleon and uh, Jean-Jacques uh, Cambrassiers uh, as second council and Charles-Francois Lebrun uh, as third council, and there's various engravings and so forth that show the three of them together. Uh, but, in fact, of course, Napoleon uh, is in December of 1799 uh, the head of the French government at the ripe old age of 30. So, just to recap, I guess, uh, where we've come from since episode uh, well, two, really, when we started the story. I mean, when Napoleon set off on his military career in earnest, you know, it was, it was only uh, a few years before. It was, uh, you know, in, the, in 1776, really, that we saw a revolution really take hold and Napoleon go off. Uh, to well, I mean, the revolution was in '92, so we've had seven years since the original revolution. We've had sort of a few years of Napoleon in military affairs go from being a artillery lieutenant <laughs> to basically the uh, dictator of France. That's not a long time. No, it's not a long time. Even if you start from 1789, the, the beginning of the revolution, uh, it's 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 a it, it's a meteoric rise, as as people love to say, and that may be a cliche, but it's also very very true. Uh, and 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 you have to sort of think about well well how did this all happen? And there's a variety of things that 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 sort of contribute to Napoleon's ability to rise to to power in 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 in, in a decade or so uh, a lot of personal characteristics intelligence determination he had a force of will that was just impossible to overcome his family was very very supportive especially in the early days when it was his family his his father and his and his mother with her connections to uh the, the, the French governor of Corsica who, who got him to France uh, and into the military schools. Uh, and one of the papers I, I, I've written and lectures I've given is it's, 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 it's not just you know who you are but who you know. Uh, Napoleon was able to, to meet and to use and, and use in, in a positive way, not in a negative way, friendships uh, that he established with powerful people. Uh, he he got to know people one way or the other who were in a position to help him and who who wanted to help him. Whether it was some of his his uh, teachers and excuse me in military schools or or whether it was people like Barra later on uh, and and some of his Corsican uh, uh, folks uh, back in the 1790s, uh, Salicetti, for example. Uh, but he developed powerful influential friends and had no hesitancy to to take advantage of of that possibility he was also willing to take risks you know doing some of the things that he did uh, was a gamble uh, and if he loses it's all over and and maybe his life is over certainly during the earlier days of the revolution but he's willing to take risk he's willing to 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 be out in front uh, some of it had to do with timing he just happened to be a young officer with ambition and ability just at the time of the French Revolution when there was wars going on. 
and a lot of, as we said earlier, vacancies uh, at, at the top due to the guillotine and due to, to other factors. Uh, I, I think I may have told the story once before that, that years later, uh, Napoleon was was being <clears throat> told, well, this so-and-so should be promoted uh, uh, to a general because he's got this characteristic that he's done this, that, and the other thing. And Napoleon interrupts and says, ah, yes, but is he lucky? Napoleon believed in luck, and Napoleon himself was notoriously lucky. Things would oftentimes just fall right into place for him. But if you if you want to come to the bottom line for Napoleon, whether it's now or later on in his life, why is Napoleon successful? Because of his sheer ability. The man was a genius. He was brilliant. He knew what had to be done. He knew how to do it, and he did. And once he's in power in late 1799, he eliminates the internal uh, threats uh, by not sending armies uh, against the uh, Shuans and others, uh, but simply by saying, on the one, as a carrot and stick, he says, on the one hand, okay, guys, if you guys, anyone collaborates with someone who's a rebel against the government, will be shot. On the other hand, any of you who renounce your activities and will now join with this new France and move forward, you will be given uh, amnesty. Uh, you will be allowed to, to put your past behind you and will move forward. Uh, the nobles who had fled the country in droves, the emigres, after the revolution were offered an opportunity uh, to return uh, to France and work with the French government, uh, not get their lands back, not get their privileges back, but they were allowed to come back. They would be safe and we can use your talents. Uh, the same is true with priests. Uh, priests were, were given fair terms, not not the old order, not the old Catholic Church rules everything and priests control things, but they were allowed to come back. Uh, and this was very popular among the masses. Uh, the no pun intended. The 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 common French people thought what Napoleon was doing was outstanding. And by the time you get into 1800, you know, into January, February, March, Napoleon has already eliminated the domestic disorder of the country, and this is just in a couple of months. And now he can turn himself to the two major issues that he has to deal with, and which we'll talk about next time. First of all, he's got an external threat he has to deal with, uh, namely our old buddies, the Austrians, among others. And secondly, he has to take the shambles that he has been given domestically as a result of the inept and corrupt directory and turn that into what I guess we could call a new France. And as we will see in the next episodes and those to follow, Napoleon Bonaparte will deal brilliantly with both of those issues.